0: This is Made at UCL, the podcast, bringing you closer to the UCL research answering nice big questions, from engineering to art, healthcare to space exploration, ancient artifacts to the technology of the future. Episode 5, what came before. Hello, I'm Susie. Welcome to Episode 5. A lot has changed since our last episode, with the coronavirus pandemic putting countries into lockdown, and I really hope you're all staying safe and well. We've got plenty of recordings from the brightest minds at UCL, and we'll be continuing to bring them to your ears. I hope we can offer you a little entertainment whilst you're at home. This episode, we bring you three stories focused on what came before us. From historical figures to extinct species and ancient fossils, we'll be delving into our past to learn about our present, and dipping a toe into the future too. So put on your best time traveller's clothes, or, you know, just stick with your pyjamas
1: as we start, the picture.
0: It's hard to describe a photo, isn't it? Mm. He's quite handsome,
1: I think. <laughs> I he's really handsome and he's, he's, he's very strong featured. He didn't come from a wealthy family. His family were really struggling financially. Um, but he has a look of, yeah, of sophistication, doesn't he? Yeah,
0: something <laughs> in
1: his eye.
0: We're looking at a picture of Isaac Rosenberg, a former student at the UCL Slade School of Fine
1: Arts. I, I read an anecdote that everybody felt he was a very gifted painter, but that he was a bit scatty. He ruined a whole uh, a number of canvases that he'd recently painted just by stacking them up against each other while they're still wet, apparently. Um, so I, I really love this idea of this gifted, talented artist who was just, I mean, that's, that's a young man or even a teenager, that kind of mistake, you know, it's... Just impatience to for your artwork to dry, and you're just stacking it up and you know, and he was he was so young he would have been you know as young as our first and second year students at UCL now. The photo comes from UCL's Special Collections, which is a
0: division of the University Library services. The collection contains ten thousand meters of rare books, archives, and manuscripts, and it also includes UCL's own documents representing the history of the university.
1: I'm looking at just some of this collection with Vicky Price, Head of Outreach for UCL Special Collections.
0: Vicky's job is to make sure this collection of rare and unusual items is accessible to as many people as possible. The collection's made up of documents from all over, and these include information about the scatty artist Mr Rosenberg, who was at UCL at the beginning of the 20th century.
1: So in front of me I've got a copy of um, Isaac Rosenberg's student record card And you can see, initially, information was typed onto it. His name is at the top, um, and you can see his birthday has been put in um, by hand underneath his name. And then typed on the centre of the card is um, his address, 150 Oxford, Mile End, and his guardian, his name is written there. You can see by hand other addresses have been added on. You can see there's one fountain pen um, that's definitely... In fact, there's probably two if you look at the difference in ink. And there are obviously new addresses um, because each thing has been crossed out, I would guess, every time he's moved home. And he was a student, so I guess you would move quite regularly. You might decide to live with a different friend or you might decide to live, um, move back with your family or live with a guardian... Um, and you can see there's a blue pencil also that's crossed out some of these addresses so that maybe was later or earlier, we can't tell exactly. Um, but then what's most striking about this in particular is that the whole thing has been crossed out. First with a pencil and then with a, a red pen. It's an official record and someone's put this big red cross across the whole thing um, and it looks like it's been done quickly. Uh, not, It hasn't been done with a ruler, it's freehand and what's been typed over the top is killed in action. By hand, they've added 1914 to 18, which tells us it was definitely the First World War that he was involved in.
0: Isaac Rosenberg is today known for his celebrated war poems, which he wrote from the trenches. He died not long after the Battle of the Somme, where he fought. In 2018, Vicky ran a series of workshops with primary and secondary school students across London to teach them about the Somme as part of a project called Shrouds of the Somme, which marked the centenary of the end of the First World War. She took these documents into the classroom with her, and some pupils were quite excited to take a closer look.
1: I certainly remember handing out the record card, um, which clearly states his his initial address, which is his family address in Marland, End. And I, I don't say anything about it, I just handed them out and said, have a look, see what you think it is. Um, and uh, it's one of the Year 9, so secondary school pupil looked down and said that's just down the road from me. Is he from where I'm from? And I was like, absolutely, he's from where you're from. And this is just 100 years ago. uh, And he was perhaps six or seven years older than you are now at this point when this document was first made for him. And it was a perfect starting point.
0: Somehow, this little yellowed card allowed the students to go back in
1: time. I mean, it's just a record. So it wasn't created to make you feel anything. But it does make you feel things. We talked about who did the big cross. That almost seemed like they, it, was a, it was being defaced. We talked about was it being defaced or was that somebody who's just trying to make it clear on the record that that's someone who's no longer a student at Slade? Um, or maybe they were. Was that person upset who did it? How did they feel making the record that one of their students had died? And then we could have a discussion about whether or not that was a common occurrence at that time or not. And then we can start talking about loss of life on a large scale, on the home front, what happened back at home when lots of young men were killed. And you don't you don't know for sure, you cannot get, find out exactly, you know, who did that cross. We'll never know. But because we're, we all admit that we will never know, we accept that, there's space for imagination and there's space for discussion around it.
0: Imagination might not be the first thing that comes to mind when we think of studying history. But to truly understand and feel the significance of huge events like the Somme, we need to do a delicate dance between facts and imaginings to join up the individual stories contained in documents like these with the wider context of the war and its part in history.
1: For a topic like the Battle of the Somme, there are lots of grey areas and lots of very upsetting uh subject matters to discuss and to explore and you must make sure that you do that properly and that everybody has a chance to speak and is listened to Um, but we yeah we try and have some moments in the workshop where actually there's a question and you can get it right or wrong we did activities where pupils were just asked to watch a short film and extract information about in a really non-emotional cold way so when did the battle start how long did it last for how many people died
0: it began on the 1st of July, 1916, and lasted for 140 days. Over 300,000 people died in total, including the German, British and French forces. The total killed and injured was around 1.6 million.
1: And then we start looking at, actually, what does that number really mean as a visual number? What does that mean? And then we start talking about like Isaac Rosenberg's experience, and so he was one of those individuals. So we, we try and draw in the learner from a kind of basic... Uh, these are some facts, through to a kind of a more emotional response.
0: For some of the older children, this meant reading Isaac Rosenberg's now famous poem, Break of Day in the Trenches, from the original manuscript, which has an early draft of the poem.
1: The darkness crumbles away, it is the same old Druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat as I pull a poppy from the parapet to stick behind my ears. Droll, subterranean, they would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies and Lord knows what antipathies. For you have touched an English hand and will do the same to a German soon, no doubt, if it be your pleasure to cross the poppy-blooded field between. Wow. Yeah. it's It's the message of a young man thinking about the other young men in the German army who he is charged with trying to kill and he really sees those as individuals just
2: like himself.
0: Students also wrote their own letters and poems imagining themselves as soldiers in the trenches.
2: As I slept it smelt like smoke and the wind shivered down my spine. I can see the end was not near. Cries of the dead awoke. No one's happy, only sick. I was terrified as I felt a rat crawl on my arm. When I woke up, I heard mud squelching. It was so loud, all I heard was bangs and booms. Bang! There goes the bomb. Another 50 casualties. There goes the gunfire. I want to go home. I must fight for my country. Give them my all. After all the work I did, I was starving. I had to make a fire so I could cook my food. I heard lots of fighter jets flying past. It almost busted my eardrums and then almost made me deaf. It's hard here, the foul smell of waste. Except me, as your trustworthy soldier, I'll do as you say.
0: Thanks to Martha and Gabby there, who were reading from work written by students that attended Vicky's workshop. Haider and Ishnak. My interview with Vicky was recorded at the end of 2019, but putting it together for you now in the context of a global pandemic has brought home to me the importance of connecting to our past and to the lives that have come before us. We can learn a great deal from history in shaping our future, and that includes not just human history, but the history of the natural world. During lockdown, there's been some potential good news stories, with reports of air pollution lowering, waters clearing and animals reclaiming once busy urban areas. You might have seen pictures of lions sunbathing on roads in Kruger National Park in South Africa, which has been closed to visitors since the outbreak. Images and stories like this are making our impact on the planet all the more obvious and gives us a chance to reflect on our relationship to the natural world. Many scientists are referring to the current times as a sixth mass extinction. Since the 1500s, somewhere between 680 and 700 vertebrate species have gone extinct.
3: You can go back to the classic dodo as one of the first that we know about, but then the thylacine and more recently the pinter giant tortoise back in 2012 was identified as as going extinct.
0: Recent estimates suggest that the rate of extinction is increasing across
3: all species. And the last mass extinction event was around 65 or so million years ago. Of course, that's what wiped out the dinosaurs. A recent assessment from um, what's known as IPBES, the Intergovernmental Panel for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, estimated that there's probably about a million species on the planet that are at high risk of extinction over the coming decades.
0: This is
3: Richard Pearson.
0: Professor of Ecology at UCL.
3: Essentially I'm interested in questions around kind of why species are vulnerable to extinction.
0: Richard spends his days crunching numbers over a computer screen, creating models and predictions as to how the populations of mammals and birds, insects and worms, plants and fungi are changing around the world. He also happens to have taught me while I was at UCL myself. Being in his class made me aware of the impact humans have had on the natural world and the threats that species have to their survival. I wondered how Richard copes with all these worrying predictions. So it sort of surprised me to hear him say this.
3: You know, we hear about biodiversity crisis and and emergencies, but all is not lost. Everything's to play for.
0: I was a bit confused. Surely what he taught me was that it is an emergency. The animals and plants are all dying and we have to act now.
3: The science certainly shows that Biodiversity is in crisis, there's no doubt about that, so I'm not questioning that for a moment, but there are a tonne of things that we can actually do to address this challenge.
0: But it looks to me like none of this is happening fast enough. And even worse, governments around the world also seem to keep doing and saying some pretty unhelpful things that get in the way of conservation.
3: While you have at the extremes, you know, Trump administration in the US dismantling environmental protections it was only i think 2017 that barack obama said if you were going to be born at any time in history you'd be born today and i think that's absolutely true in terms of literacy rates in terms of child mortality in terms of life expectancy the progress that we've made on those kinds of fronts is just phenomenal but
0: surely there's no use progressing these kind of areas if we don't have a healthy planet to live on
3: i'm actually not a, huge challenges, um, but we haven't lost biodiversity yet and there are a whole bunch of things that we that we can do and, and there are reasons to to be positive. Of course, we're not going to be able to achieve zero hunger and zero poverty unless we conserve the environment. Nature is absolutely fundamental to so many of the other goals that we have as a society. We like to live in a world that has tigers and polar bears, but it's also the little critters, the insects, that pollinate our crops and aerate our soils and move nutrients around and clean our water. We are part of nature and we simply couldn't exist without the rest of nature.
0: Whether we respond to this crisis with sorrow and fear or with hope and optimism. If we're going to have any chance of saving species, we need to understand what exactly threatens the many lives on our planet, and the most effective ways to protect them. This is what Richard is really interested in.
3: The main threats really that we need to address are um, habitat loss, habitat fragmentations. The rates of deforestation are extremely high, uh, so we need to protect habitats of species.
0: Another threat is exploitation of species.
3: That is just over-harvesting. Fishing is the classic example, but bushmeat as well is a big issue.
0: Then there's pollution.
3: Plastics, PCBs and other chemicals that get into water streams, into the seas, into freshwater systems.
0: And invasive species. So
3: these are these species that get moved around the world by humans, be it in ships and aeroplanes, and then invade new areas and cause damage to local environments.
0: One part of Richard's job is to assess which species are most vulnerable to extinction because of these threats. He, alongside many ecologists around the world, analysed data collected in the field about species numbers and locations to create lists of endangered, threatened and vulnerable species, such as the IUCN Red List.
3: One of the main contributions that we've been working on is to try to anticipate which species are going to be more threatened over the coming decades. It's one challenge to kind of look back over what's happened over the last few decades, but can we actually anticipate into the future? Then we need to start using um, computer simulations and cool methods like that.
0: These simulations allow conservationists to prioritise their efforts to protect the species most at threat of extinction in the near future. But now a new threat is on the horizon, climate change. Until recently, there hasn't been any way of factoring that into these assessments. But back in 2014, Richard and his colleagues focused their research on building new models to rectify this.
3: So one of our key aims was just to ask, well, is it some of the usual suspects, things like small populations, limited range sizes, uh, low dispersal ability? Is it, is it these kinds of factors that that make species vulnerable to climate change, just like vulnerable to other threats? um, Or is there something particularly special about climate change which is going to make them more vulnerable?
0: By comparing how changing conditions in the past have affected species, Richard was able to build accurate models that predict how they'll be affected by climate change in the future. And the results were sort of a non-finding, but a useful one. What they found was that the species most affected by it are the usual suspects. They're the species already deemed at risk by other threats. So he has another surprising perspective.
3: Biodiversity loss is not all about climate change by by any means, actually. Really the the threat to biodiversity are what we refer to as synergies, so um, links and interactions between different threats.
0: This is where those all-important details and nuances are crucial to understand. Species have always adapted to changing conditions,
3: but in order to do so, they need to shift their ranges. They need to be able to change their life cycles. And the more they're threatened by other factors, the, the more at risk they are.
0: So, for example, climate change means many species are needing to move several kilometres towards the poles or up slopes to cooler locations as their old habitats get warmer.
3: Well, that's all very well if, if there isn't a golf course and a road and a housing block in, in the way. The more we fragment and dominate landscapes, the less opportunity species have to naturally uh, respond. So that's really why climate change from a biodiversity perspective is such a big issue. It's, It's the combination with other factors.
0: The conventional way of conserving species has been to build protected areas where humans aren't allowed to hunt and kill animals or to build roads or houses.
3: But you can't... Protect from climate change because climate change doesn't respect the fences that you put around protected areas. So we need to be thinking about landscapes that are well connected. Instead of small reserves in certain parts of the world, we need to be thinking about whole landscapes that have networks of reserves that are connected. So you can imagine as one protected area becomes unsuitable for a species as the climate's changing, um, it can actually jump to the next part of the landscape that's suitable or moving along corridors. Or some people even say that we should be actually picking up certain species and shifting them to areas that are becoming more more suitable. So there there are all sorts of things that that we as a society can be doing.
0: And understanding how these threats interact is what's going to allow us to prevent mass extinction and to bring those numbers down from the one million prediction. Seeing that there are things that can be done keeps Richard working hard to understand all those details. And he sees now as a real opportunity to shape our planet and its future for the better.
3: We often talk about the Anthropocene, the age of mankind, if you like. We have such an influence on the planet now that we really are, in a kind of geological sense, people will look back, or, or some organism will look back at some point in thousands of years' time and say, you know, this was the age of humans. We really have the opportunity to do something over the next few decades, but it's going to take turning around how we, as a society, treat nature.
0: of the organisms of the future. Our last story is about finding what other life there might be in our universe.
4: My name is Dominic Papineau. I am an associate professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at UCL and also a principal investigator at the London Centre for Nanotechnology. And I'm also the director of the Centre for Planetary Science here at ucl Birkbeck.
0: Dominic has been doing work funded by NASA, which needs him to look far back into the Earth's past to help them understand what might be going on on other
4: planets. NASA and ESA are both uh, planning on sending rovers to Mars in in this year, in 2020, uh, and the rovers will both arrive in 2021 to Mars because it takes about six months to travel there. Um, but the explicitly stated goals of those two missions are to search for biological signature.
0: A biological signature or biosignature being something that gives evidence that living things existed. It might be the presence of organic matter such as cells or even bigger structures like bones. Fossils are also biosignatures because they were created by the decay of a living thing. There's even such a thing as a techno signature. A lamp, for example, is evidence of our ability to harness electricity and create artificial light. It could also be a biosignature because it indicates intelligent life. The problem is, there's not a whole load of really obvious biosignatures of ancient life forms just lying around, either here on Earth or out in space.
4: Besides the the skull of a T-Rex in, a, in an outcrop, right? So we have to consider biosignatures as... Possible signatures of life.
0: These possible biosignatures are often much more intricate signs of life, like finding certain chemicals that can only belong to a living thing, or a tiny formation in a rock made by a biological process. If you get enough of these tiny possible signs together, you have a pretty good claim for the presence of life.
4: That is the old age question. Are we alone in the universe? Which is a fantastic, like mind-blowing question that everybody wants to know.
0: But to identify new biosignatures, they need to know what to look for. And the best place to figure that out is right here on Earth.
4: So I guess the story all began when I went in the field back in 2008 in northern Quebec in Canada, investigating various aspects of that supercrustal belt, which are these very ancient uh, crustal remnants of the early Earth.
0: Because they're so old and formed where there's been a lot of movement of tectonic plates, the rocks are all folded up on themselves. All that folding and gradual movement over millions of years and under high pressure has changed the minerals into new forms.
4: So that tends to erase any kind of primordial signature that was there initially.
0: I looked up a photograph of these supercrustal belts and on the surface, they basically look like a load of grey rocks. I probably wouldn't think twice about them if I walked past. Yet Dominic knows that there's something a lot more special about them, which is why he went to investigate this particular belt in Quebec.
4: And uh, that one is called the nouveau Agitouk supercrustal belt, which is a, an Inuktituk name.
0: That's one of the main Inuit languages of Canada
4: which means a small hill. And indeed, the outcrops there are very, very nice. There were glaciers there up uh, up, uh, until about 8,000 years ago. There's very little soil, there's very little growth. There are no trees, no grass. I don't know if you can imagine the kind of landscape. It's very rocky, and you're right on the side of the Hudson Bay, so uh, it's very beautiful, very picturesque, with beautiful islands off the shore, and when you have a beautiful sunny day, it's fantastic. But it's very challenging work, because uh, rocks of that age, I'm talking about, at least 3.75 billion years, and potentially these rocks, and that's debated, potentially these rocks are 4.28 billion years old, which makes them the oldest rocks on Earth that we have. That is why most people assume that there are no fossils of that age. And even me, I, mean, I was not thinking I was going to find fossils. I was not looking for fossils when I went there back in 2008. I was looking for other kinds of biological signatures.
0: The belt is made up of three parts, each with their own types of formations, and Dominic was looking particularly at the banded iron formations. And that's the part of the belt which was formed at the bottom of the sea. It's about three kilometres in length, but there was a small part of it that suddenly stood out.
4: There was a patch, just a few uh, tens of metres in size, instead of being the typical grey-green banded iron formation. And this one was red. I got really excited when I saw that, <laughs> as you can see uh, from my smile, uh, because these rocks were accompanied by these orange rocks, which were loaded with uh, iron-rich carbonate, and uh, there were also these uh, patches of quartz, like uh, which we call concretions, and they form these beds and they're very black, they're very hard, and they usually tend to contain fossils. Hence, I was very excited in the field. I knew there was something special about these rocks and that they deserved more attention.
0: Dominic collected up the rocks and took them away with him.
4: I brought the big bag of rocks into my lab and then many things happened and eventually I end up here at UCL.
0: Because he had a special feeling about these rocks, he recruited postgrad student Matthew Dodd to do a PhD, examining them in as much detail as he could.
4: Matt did a lot of work, uh, careful microscopy and micro-Raman imaging, which uh, consists in identifying the different minerals in a, in a very thin slice of rock about the thickness of a, of a piece of paper, uh, like glued on a, on a glass slide so that it's, it's solid enough to move around. And uh, hold and behold, he found these little filaments of hematites. You can imagine this. It's about the, half the width of a human hair, but they're very long, so they look like very skinny, skinny hairs in there, but they're made of hematite. And hematite is a, is a mineral that's uh, made of iron oxide. formula is Fe2O3. And it's essentially rust, so it appears red. Uh, and uh, when we looked at those filaments and more and more and more, we started to see structures within the filaments. And some of them had twisted structure, a little bit like a corkscrew that you would use to open a wine bottle. Um, And that, to us, was one of the telltale signs that that we're looking at something that's most likely biological.
0: Essentially, their theory was that these corkscrew shapes could be fossils of tiny living organisms from millions of years ago. This might not be enough on its own, But the team also found graphite, which is formed with carbon. Carbon is important because it's the building block of all biological life. Alongside the graphite, they found carbonate and apatite, which is the mineral that makes up our teeth and bones. All this together...
4: ...was suggesting to us that indeed we were looking at many independent observations that were all converging towards a single explanation that they were living things in the distant past.
0: Now, as with any good scientific process, the theory that these formations in the rocks are indeed evidence of early life on Earth is still being discussed. There are some who are sceptical and have attempted to find out if those shapes in the rocks and the minerals that were found could have been made by something that wasn't a living creature. Dominic's continuing to investigate the truth of the matter, though he's fairly sure of his hypothesis, which would make the finding a pretty big deal.
4: First of all, if we're right... If it's true, it's a very important discovery because they represent their, therefore the oldest fossils on Earth. Uh, it is a very it has implications for what the earliest life forms look like. It has implications for the origin of life in terms of in which environment it, it, it would have uh, it would have arisen, and uh, ultimately uh, there are implications as far as planetary sciences are concerned. To take a foothold on a planet, life, or, or on any planetary body, as a matter of fact, doesn't need to be a planet, it could be a moon, it takes a very short amount of time. And because that amount of time is shortened by our discovery, I think it increases the likelihood that extraterrestrial life exists.
0: So what's next for Dominic's research?
4: While we're still working on these rocks, I want to go back there. I want to sample these outcrops more. I want to map them in more detail. And uh, since that discovery already, we uh, we have documented a lot more biosignatures in terms of possible signatures of life. So now we're finding that it may be a much more complex microbial community. These include arborescent structures that look like groups of filaments that are all attached to a main stem and are parallel aligned and all branching. And within these kinds of trees of filaments, we're now finding these small uh, small spheres, so another kind of, of, of microfossil in there that will make it much more difficult, I think, to explain in non-biological ways. We'll uh, hopefully publish that work very soon.
0: that brings us to the end of this episode. From soldiers to species to fossils, I hope you've enjoyed our little journey from the past to the present and back again and maybe into the future too. Do subscribe to Made at UCL on the app of your choice and get in touch with us over on Twitter with the hashtag Made at UCL. You could even leave us a review on iTunes to let us know if you're enjoying the series so far. On a personal and more important note, I hope you and your family stay safe and well in these difficult times. Made at UCL, the podcast is made by me, Susie McCarthy. The executive producer is Nina Garthwaite. Mixing support from Mike Woolley. We'd like to thank all our researchers for welcoming us into their labs and offices. Hashtag Made at UCL is a campaign that brings to life disruptive thinking from UCL. Research presented in this episode was nominated and selected because of the impacts it's made on everyday life and society. This episode is brought to you from UCL Mind Events, lectures and podcasts open to everyone.